Father God, you are so good to us. Your love is so intense. Why, why should we gain from your reward? You are so loving and so kind. Spirit draws back to that truth today. Meet us in your word. Meet us in this space. God, for those of us who walked into this space a little weary and a little ragged, Lord, I pray that you would prop us up on the immensity of your love. That we would leave this place with an assurance of who you are, where we stand with you. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. And I tell you what, that is my favorite hymn. Uh, and so I am so we got to sing that. And there is, there is something magical about Jesus' church out singing, out singing the band and filling the room up. Man, thank you for that. Merry Christmas. Glad you guys are here. We're continuing out our Advent series today. We're going to be finishing it out this Friday, we, we've been doing a weird Advent series this year, but I've really liked it. We've been uh, basing it out of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, the most exciting text to build a series around. But what we've done is we've, we've looked at the different women in Jesus' genealogy, kind of these mothers, these grandmothers, these great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. And we've looked at each one of their stories in light of the themes of the Advent, Advent wreath in the season of Advent. So the, the first week we talked about hope through the lens of Tamar, a young woman who had her hope removed from her by uh, the awfulness of the world. And the, the second week we, we talked about faith through the lens of Rahab, who, who began the story as Rahab the harlot, and yet through her faith, In God's goodness, she ends the story as Rahab, the daughter of Abraham. And then last week, we talked about joy through the lens of Ruth, the young Moabitess widow who, who through the goodness of God, found love and redemption in the midst of her sorrow. And this week, we light, click on, the love candle. I don't know if you grew up with Advent wreaths in your tradition. I didn't. But the love candle is actually a different color. It's, it's pink instead of purple. In some Advent wreaths, it's red instead of purple. The, the other candles are purple because, because they're in this expectation of our coming king, right? They're, they're royal. But the, the love candle is tinted red or tinted pink because when we are in Christmas time, when we're in the Christmas season and we talk about love, what we're talking about is the love of God for the broken and sinful world. We're talking about the love of God that intercedes on our broken and dead world in our sinful, broken lives. In all the awful things we've done and all the awful things that have been done to us, we're talking about a God who sees us, who sees us soberly, sees the good and the bad in us, and says, I love that and I will pay for that. It's the love of Advent, the love we're talking about today. Different from the way our culture really talks about love often. Brittany said this in in, in our our opening piece with the Advent reading. But it really is set apart. Love is the kind of word that we can easily print on a poster and put in a window at a department store, and it just feels at home in the Christmas time. But that's not what we're talking about. Who who in the room, where where are my Hallmark Christmas movie fans at? 
My mother-in-law's in the back like, this is my time to shine. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Hallmark Christmas movies. I'm sorry. But I get why you are. And I'll tell you why. Because they are cotton candy in movie form, right? Like, like they are just sweet like nothing. And, and, and there's something very pleasant, very pleasant about that. It's just... It's just joyful to see how happy and sweet they are. But can we all agree, whether you're a fan or not, can we all agree that when it gets down to it, there actually is only one Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Like, there is, they, like, supposedly, hypothetically, they swap out the actors from movie to movie, but I can't actually tell. Uh, <laughs> it's just big city grouchy person who hates Christmas goes to small town America Bonus points if they're going to small-town America to buy out a local business and put a franchise in. They meet small-town business owner who loves Christmas. Bonus points if their small business is the one being bought out for the franchise. Grouchy, who hates Christmas. Nice, who loves Christmas. Don't like each other, but then they do like each other. And then Grouchy loves Christmas and Grouchy moves to small town, right? Like, that's, that's the story. And, and look, look. I get it. I get a million percent why we love these movies because we love love. We love it. We love to see love win. And, and we love to see love and sacrifice and kindness win out over grouchiness and hating Christmas, right? Like we, we enjoy this. It's why, it's why we sit and eat the cotton candy. <laughs> but we all acknowledge that Hallmark Christmas movies are to real love as cotton candy is to a four-course meal, right? It's fun, it's sweet, but it's not actually the same. The love we're talking about is the love of God. The sovereign love, you're like, dang, we just went from like light to heaven. Stick with me. The love of God for you and me. The love of God that sees us soberly sees our sin, sees our shame, sees the worst parts of us and says, I still want that. And I'll pay for it. And I'll gladly, joyfully invite that in. That's the love of Advent. That's why the candle's a different color. That's why we gather together today. And we're going to talk about that the story of David and Bathsheba. So if you want to open your Bibles up to 2 Samuel we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 today. If you know this story already, then you're probably on some level going, wait, I'm sorry, what, what, which story are we doing for the Love Week? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and you're right. This is not a love story. This is, I mean, can, this is like the anti-Hallmark movie. It's like the opposite of everything we've just been talking about. And I'll, I'll say this too really quick. I'm not exaggerating. I say this is an awful story. I mean, this is pretty just gruesome to read. And for some of you guys, it will probably be upsetting for us to sit and read this story because it's pretty violent and dehumanizing and, and just not good. But I think it will be good for us today. And here's the reason why. We're going to walk through this story and we're going to get just a little glimpse into the reality of sin. The reality of how the curse of sin affects, distorts, and destroys mankind. How the reality of Genesis 3 affects everything else in reality. 
From the sin in our own hearts and the sin we choose to commit to the sin that exists in the cursed and broken world that, it, that comes out in injustices and wrongs and evils done to us, we're going to get a really clear window into just the reality and effects of sin on people. And I think that's going to lead us to a place of just having some hopefully fresh and clear eyes to see the love of God afresh. To be reminded how intense the love of God is for us, for this world. I'm really praying that that's, that's just all we take in today, is that Jesus loves you more than you can possibly imagine. We'll go through the story, I'll dig out some historical parts, we'll all cringe together as we go through it. Hopefully we'll get clear eyes on this contrast between the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity, the amazing depths of the love of God. That'll lead us for just a minute to reflect quickly on a parable that Jesus gave in Luke 14, and we'll end our time by looking at uh, the Apostle John, uh, just a quick note from the Apostle John's first letter, uh, and then we'll spend some time in prayer and taking communion. Sound good? Awesome. Let's jump into this. So let me read this opening verse here, and then I'll give us some context. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath, but David remained at Jerusalem. So what's going on here? Remember, in this series, we've been jumping generation to generation, right? Like we started with Tamar in Genesis in the time of the patriarchs. We moved to the time of Joshua and looked at Rahab as Israel's entering into the promised land. We moved forward into the era of the judges and we looked at the story of Ruth. And now we're moving forward four generations from the story of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was the great grandmother of King David into the reign of King David. So what what happened in the time in between Ruth and now is this. Remember, the story of Judges is the story of God's people systematically moving away from him, growing in division, growing in bitterness, growing in sinfulness, growing in their breaking of covenant, and things just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until during the ministry of the final judge, Samuel, the, 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 the people of Israel come together and essentially say, hey, look, we're tired of this. We want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. Now, this is in direct violation of God's design for Israel. At Mount Sinai, when God made a covenant with Israel and defined what this people would look like, what his relationship would look like, the way it was designed was that God's people would would exist, even as 12 tribes, as one unified people under the direct leadership of Yahweh himself. Through the tent of meeting, he would speak to his people through the prophets and through the priests and lead them directly. They were not to be like the nations around them. And when he sent them into the promised land, he said, you know, my, my judgment is against Canaan. Like, don't leave them there. Don't leave these people there because you are not to be like them. And now just a few generations later, exactly what God warned is exactly what happens. And Israel says, we don't want you. We want to be like the other countries. We want a king to lead us. And God, in his grace explains to them what that means, explains to them the consequences that will come with that decision, and then gives them what they ask for. And Saul the Benjamite is anointed king, and he leads Israel, and it kind of works. 
He's able to unify the tribes and build up an army and they they push back some of their their attackers and and they're able to retake some of the land that was taken from them and and those sorts of things happen. And and Saul's pretty capable as a military and political leader. It's it's, it's kind of a mixed bag of successes and failures, but he's, he's pretty capable. But what becomes apparent really quickly is that Saul may be able to lead the army, but he is not spiritually mature enough to lead the people spiritually, emotionally, relationally, any of those things. And Saul's reign devolves into debauchery and evil relatively quickly. He begins blaspheming God, and God denounces him as king and says, you're not my anointed anymore. I'm going to raise up someone new, someone after my heart, David. And and this comes together with Saul, according to the text, being demonically oppressed and literally ordering the slaughter of an entire village of Levitical priests. It's pretty intense. And eventually... God brings this whole thing about David is forced to go into hiding and he actually becomes kind of a traveling warlord and raises around him his own personal army of loyalists and criminals and mercenaries and he's able to defend and protect his own but Saul is hunting him and Israel has de-unified into kind of this vague civil war with different tribes having different levels of loyalty to Saul and David and God finally resolves the conflict by just killing Saul and then killing his son, who would be take, take over for him. And David is anointed king, and after some brief squabbles, the kingdom of Israel is united again. And David's kingdom, this is picking up in the first chapters, or the first few chapters of, of 1 Samuel, or 1 Samuel kind of tells this whole story, but David's reign is incredibly successful. He's able to lead his people politically. He's able to lead them militarily. And he's also able to lead them spiritually. Under David's leadership, the armies of Israel begin pushing back their enemies and retaking land that has been lost for generations, land given to them at the covenant when they entered into Israel. And he not only does that, but he actually begins to lead the people spiritually. And the Ark of the Covenant, the physical presence of God on earth, goes forth with the army again, with priests, with proper worship. And eventually the Ark is brought into Jerusalem, the the capital city, and David leads his people in proper worship and begins to put plans in place to have a temple built to God, right? Like, he's doing very well. Where our text picks up is at this point. David's reign has been incredibly successful. Israel is in the best position it has ever been since it's been a nation. They've got strong borders, a good leader, a good army, a defendable capital. Their, their military campaigns are going well. They still have a lot of land to take back that was lost during the era of the judges. But in general, things are going really well for Israel and for David. This is the first time in literal years that he's living in a house instead of living on the run, getting hunted down and actively you know, sought to be murdered continually. And so spring comes around, and it's time for the military to pick their campaigns back up and get back to work, and David stays home. Now this might not strike us immediately, but this piece is actually pretty important to the whole story and where this goes. And the reason is this. It's really normative for the kings to go to battle with their army, to to actually lead forth 
as, as one, like the army kind of operating out of the honor and strength of the king, right? Like the role of the king in the battle is really important and speaks to the strength of the nation. In fact, the only times when a king wouldn't go to battle with their army is if they were too old and frail or if they considered the battle so insignificant that it wasn't worth the risk. Neither of those things are true in this case. David is at the height of his strength, and this is an incredibly important campaign. He just doesn't want to go. And here's the deal with that. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, this dude has lived his entire adult life on the run, living in caves. Now, all of a sudden, he's got a sick palace, a whole bunch of money, good food, a fortified city. Life is good. God is blessing. God made a covenant with him to protect his reign and protect his nation. And he's sitting there looking at his boys, packing up their bags, getting ready to go. And he just goes, you know, I think I'm going to sit this one out. I think I'm going to chill and eat some of this good food. You guys go and beat stuff up. I'll be here when you get back. And he's able to do that. He's got Joab, the general of his army. By the way, if you want to ever do just a really interesting character study, study Joab. He's one of the most evil people in all of Scripture. Super, super evil dude that that David puts in charge of his army, who's willing to do literally anything to protect the interests of Israel. The guy is insane. He's got a Joab, and he's got his mighty men, his lieutenants, his generals. These are the, 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 the strongest of these loyalists, criminals, and mercenaries that joined up with David when he was a warlord, he's rewarded those guys and made them his generals and commanders and lieutenants, and they're really stinking tough. These are guys who like would sneak into enemy camps to steal water out of the well just to prove that they could. These are tough boys. And so David's like, I'm good. You guys go beat up the baddies. I'll stay here and eat the good food. I'll let you know what you missed on Netflix when you get back. And they go. And I know that's like a weird thing to say to start here, but I, we need to start here because you need to know two things to get into this story. You need to know that David's doing something he shouldn't do. He's actually stepping away from his duty as king, his duty to lead these people. And he's doing so for a reason that makes a ton of sense. He desires some rest and some comfort. This is him just expressing, if we're honest, some laziness. I've done my duty, I've worked hard, I've done the work. I want to sit back and enjoy the fruits of my labors. I got the people to do the work, so I'm going to sit back and chill for a while. And on the surface, that feels really small and really insignificant. But as we're going to see, that spirals in insane and insidious ways. One other thing I need to say before we get into the rest of this story. Up to this point, each week, we've really focused on the woman in each story. It's kind of the woman's story, you know, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. What you're going to see in this text is that this story isn't really about Bathsheba. She is one of the main points of it, but the way it's written really gives us Bathsheba kind of as a plot point and less of a character. And that's, it's just kind of hard to read with, our, with our, just our modern sense of things because of that. But I'd encourage you to experience this with me because it's actually part of the point, uh, how, how little Bathsheba is considered in this story. So I want to just give a little pre-warning there on that, but let's, let's continue on in this. In verse 2, it says this, It happened late one afternoon, that when, well, an afternoon that when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Whoops. So here's what happens. David is back home when he's not supposed to be. And one evening, as sun is setting, he goes out on his porch, and he's having his Mufasa moment, all that my eyes see is mine. (laughs) And as he's enjoying this, he notices a woman on her roof bathing. And he just asks, dang, who's that? And his servants say, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah. And David says, cool, bring her here. And so she's brought to him, and they engage in sexual immorality, and he sends her away. And a little while later, she sends word through her servants, hey, bud, guess what? I'm pregnant. Uh, And that's where it stops for a minute. There's a lot here. And there's a lot here that we can really easily miss in how we read this as just kind of modern Westerners. And so I'm going to pick us through a couple things that will be a little distasteful, but, but it's just kind of important for us to get our heads into this story. The first one is this. David takes this woman because he wants her. And that's pretty intense. That's pretty kind of just, it just feels slimy to us, right? But we need to understand something. This is actually a really normative practice in this day. This is not something anyone would blink at. That's kind of whatever, but stick with me on this. Remember, David is already a polygamist. <laughs> he has multiple wives and multiple concubines. He is an ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean king. Boy has a harem built into his palace. That's how he lives. And he sees a woman that he desires, and because he's an ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean king, the, the, the rule of the day, the norm of his culture was, the king is the boss. He has the highest honor, the most strength. This is an honor-centric culture, and the honor of the king is sacred and important to all of the people. The king needs to be the strongest, the smartest, the best, the most sexual prowess, the best wives, the coolest house. He needs to have all of it. So whatever he wants, he takes, because the king's honor is important to the whole nation. So for a king to see a woman that he finds beautiful and say, I want her, is normal in that day. What he would do, and actually for many families, it was considered an honor for a woman, someone's wife, to be beautiful enough to be taken by the king and taken into his harem. The king, all he needed to do was simply pay a massive dowry to the husband to pay for the divorce and then take the woman into his harem, either as a wife and a queen or as a concubine. And many people in this day and age actively sought to make that sort of thing happen as a way of advancing their family status, right? And again, I know that just some of this is gross to us, but it's important to note this. David is doing something that no one in his palace would have blinked at. Oh, the king saw someone he thinks is beautiful? Go get her! She doesn't have a choice in this matter. This is how the culture works. What's shocking and what actually sets this story spiraling is that after David has used Bathsheba, he sends her away. This was actually inappropriate. You see, by engaging Bathsheba sexually, he was essentially committing to either marrying her or taking her as a concubine. But whatever happened, 
struck David in such a way that he said, not my deal, I'm not into it, and he sends her home. Now that is a pretty shameful thing to do in that world at that time. Sends her home, sends her away, says, nope, not my deal, we're going to pretend this didn't happen. And when she sends word that she's pregnant, things get a little more intense. Because now the pressure is even more so on David to do his duty and take this woman and care for her and raise this child. But David is set on not doing this. We don't know why, by the way. You know, different, if you've heard this story preached on, sometimes people will try and focus in and assign positive or negative character to Bathsheba, that she was either like a scheming harlot or she's a, a victim who's being like terribly mistreated. The problem is we have no way of knowing. We just don't know. We, the text doesn't tell us much about Bathsheba. A couple things we can infer here is that, you know, she chose to bathe nude on her roof and almost certainly knew that that spot was visible from the palace because she's a wealthy woman. She's the daughter of one of David's mighty men, and she's the wife of one of David's mighty men. That's why her house is up against the palace. This is a well-known, wealthy woman who knows exactly where her house sits in comparison to the palace, right? We can't necessarily infer anything from that. I mean, she chose to go bathe at night, and it was, as it tells us, a ritual bath. You know, the law commands that women are to take a ritual bath after their period, which is what she's doing. So she's following God's law, and she's doing so at evening. And by the way, the king's not supposed to be home right now. He's supposed to be out with the army. And so we can, we just don't know. We don't know what's in her mind or in her heart in this. What we do know is that ultimately it didn't matter. When the king's servants show up, she doesn't have a choice. She's got to go. And so she goes, and then she's sent home. Dismissed, without the honor, without the proper duty, without actually being brought into the family of the king. And when she finds out she's pregnant, she sends word. Hey, bud, I'm pregnant, and you know, my husband's not really around. So we probably ought to deal with this. And David's response to that is to bring Uriah home. Now, this is really strange. Because again, all he had to do was just say, dang, okay, come back. Yeah, like you're, you're one of my wives, you're one of my concubines now. But he doesn't want to. Instead, he brings Uriah home and basically says, Uriah, I'm the king. I was with your wife. I'm not into it. Make this go away. It's pretty intense. And it's pretty intense because you know, we, we as Westerners, we kind of want to read this as kind of this like, intrigue, romance, kind of like secretive story with like meetings in the night at shadows. That is not what's going on here. All the communication between David and Bathsheba is happening through servants in the royal palace at a time without the internet or Netflix. Guys, the intrigue, the gossip at the palace is the entertainment of Jerusalem. If, if a single servant knows what's going on, the town knows what's going on. By the time Uriah makes his way back from the battlefield, he could not have made his way from the city gates to the palace without someone being like, hey, bud, you know why the king called you back? Let me tell you why the king called you back. He knows what's going on. He knows what the score is. And so David kind of plays the weird game. How's the war going? What's going on? How's things? Cool, cool, cool. So anyway, man, you know, how about you just go and enjoy the evening? And Uriah's response is to slap David in the face. <laughs> Not literally and physically, but pretty, he, does, he makes a pretty intense stand. 
David dismisses Uriah, says, enjoy some time off. And Uriah goes down to the city gate in the public sleeping quarters for the king's servants and sleeps there. He doesn't go home. So when David hears about that, he brings him back. What the heck, man? Why didn't you go home? I thought we had an agreement. And Uriah, whew, Uriah does something you are not supposed to do. He responds to David by saying, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He throws this in David's face and says, Yeah, not all of us are living at home in the lap of luxury, David. I'm not going to clean up your mess for you. And there's a reason for this. David has publicly humiliated and shamed both Uriah and Bathsheba. Remember, this culture is built around ideas of honor and shame. Uriah is a well-known man. He is a commander in the king's army. His house is close to the palace. And the king has taken his wife and then changed his mind and sent her home pregnant. And everyone knows. And then he's telling Uriah to clean up the mess for him. And Uriah says, I'm not going to do this. You did this, not me, so man up and fix the problem. This is not how you speak to the king. (laughs) In a a honor-centric culture, to to challenge the honor, to shame the king. I mean, Proverbs has a whole section on etiquette when you speak to royalty. And the big thing, the big takeaway from that section, if you haven't read it, is shut up. Don't say anything to the king. If you offend him, he'll kill you. Because that's how the world worked back then. But Uriah takes this and throws it in David's face and says, not my problem, dude. Do what's right. Take responsibility. Do your duty. And David's response is, okay. And he writes orders for his ruthless general Joab to have Uriah killed. And then seals them and hands them to Uriah and says, Hey, bud, go back to the war. I've got some orders for Joab. Deliver these to him. And so Uriah takes his own death sentence, unknowingly, back to his commanding officer. And Joab, who is ruthless and does not care, says, cool, I get to kill people. Sounds fun. And sends Uriah and some other troops to the most dangerous part of the fighting and then abandons them so that they're killed. And sends word back to David, deed's done, boy's dead, move on. And David moves on. The text describes it that after the period of mourning is over, and his honor, his his saved face, his honor has been restored, he showed how tough he is. Then he takes Bathsheba into his home and marries her as a wife, not as a concubine, and just moves on. And I think what's so striking about this story is that it reads... Like, David doesn't really care that much. And here's the thing. There's a really good chance David didn't care that much. There's a couple reasons for this. And, you know, we can write this off culturally that, you know, he was so caught up in these honor dynamics that worked out in his culture as the king that he just wasn't thinking about it. But I think, I think the real thing we need to get at here besides just dismissing it is realizing the fact that this is what sin does to the human heart. It numbs you. It escalates. 
It gets bigger. It goes farther than you thought it would go, and it gets worse than you think it would get, and it just numbs the human heart. Here you have David, who began this story going, I'm kind of lazy. I want to stay home and eat good food. And ends this story by, by, I mean, think about this. His, his laziness and his dismissal of duty creates space, that, 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 like, that, that place in this, right? It, it creates space to evolve into lust and evolve into sexual immorality, which then creates space for his sin to evolve and grow into pride and anger and manipulation, which then grows itself into like plotting and scheming and violence and murder. And at the end of the day, regardless of her person, regardless of her involvement in this, we can look at this and go, this stinking turn Bathsheba's world upside down. At the end of the day, she marries David, the dude who murdered her husband. And by the way, for the rest of Scripture, Bathsheba is referred to as the wife of Uriah, almost putting an emphasis on what David did here, right? He's thinking to turn this woman's life upside down. And the day after her mourning period for her dead, murdered husband ends, she moves into the home of his murderer and has to bear his child. It's pretty intense, right? And guys, we have to take a minute to talk about this. This is what sin does to human hearts distorts, it grows, it moves, and it does so in such a sly and evil way. It's, 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 the, you know, it's, it's the frog being boiled in the pot that is before you know it, you have moved from laziness to atrocity. It grows, it evolves, it snakes in our lives in ways that are terribly destructive. And I want to I caution us right now, because hopefully, as we're reading this story, you're just getting upset with David. He's pretty awful. I mean, this is, not, this, is not a, this is not a Hallmark movie. This is not Ruth and Boaz. This is not a beautiful love story. This is a guy being evil and living into his flesh and affecting other people in horrific ways. It's very easy to stand in pretty strong judgment of David right now, right? But I want to caution us. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 14 about these two guys that go to temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee in his prayer basically says, God, thank you so much that I'm so awesome. Thank you for making me like seriously the most righteous, holy person ever. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. Look at his awful sin. And the tax collector beats his breast and, and prays in like sorrow and mourning and repentance. And Jesus says, one of them leaves justified and not the other. The, the lesson there being, listen, it's really easy to stand in judgment of other people's sin. And we shouldn't ignore sin. Sin is real. It's a big deal. What David did had huge effects on the people around him and bore out awful, terrible effects. That child died. It's a sorrowful, heartbreaking story. But we must never stand in such a place of judgment that we forget that sin dwells within our hearts as well. And sin has wormed its way into our lives as well. 
And there are things we love, we love, that we hold on to, that we return to over and over and over, that we would die before we let anyone in this room know about it. I don't know how many, listen, I get it. David killed a dude. I don't know how many of us have like a murder hidden in the closet somewhere that we're hoping no one finds out about. But, but I think it's important to note, right? Like we have the curse of sin in our hearts. It lives there just like it lives in David's heart. And if we're willing to be honest, we can, each one of us, right? I can see it. Like each of us can consider and think of times when sin just grew exponentially in our lives. And something small blossomed into something huge and horrific that we didn't anticipate. We know what that's like. So rather than standing quick to be like, David is the worst person in the Bible. Why do we tell so many Sunday school stories about him? Instead of going there, let's stop for a minute and commiserate and remember that we are much more like David than we would be comfortable admitting most of the time. That we actually really do love sin. And, and a lot of bad things and the effects of sin have engaged us in painful, awful ways, but there is a truth that part of our heart actually enjoys sin and holds on to it. I want us to sit there because here's the thing. How the heck is this a love sermon? How the heck does this connect to Advent, to the love of Christ? I'll tell you guys. Because the the love of Advent is not the love of human beings. Certainly not the love of Hallmark movies, but it's not even the love of romance and beauty and honoring one another. It's the love of God for sinful, broken humanity. And here's where the story goes. If you flip over to this next chapter, God, in his grace, sends the prophet Nathan, who comes to David and tells him this parable. He's like, hey, listen, listen to this. There was a rich guy and a poor guy, and the rich guy had a bunch of sheep, and the poor guy only had one sheep. But the rich guy had some friends come over, and he thought, I should go him dinner. I know. I'll steal the poor guy's sheep and kill it and serve it to them for dinner. And he does. And David hears the story and just gets furious. Who the heck is this guy? Who does he think he is? We should hunt him down and string him up. Like he gets, and then like, and in the ultimate mic drop, like at the top three mic drop moments in all of scripture, as David is just railing on this guy, Nathan turns on him and says, David, you are the man. And David kind of goes, oh, <laughs> You know, maybe we should have some leniency. (laughs) Actually, no. See, this is the beautiful part. David hears that, and it clicks in his head. David, who's been living as though nothing happened. David, who's been living as though he got away with it, who's been walking through the world as though everything's fine and his sin doesn't really matter. In that moment, David is reminded, God sees sin. You are seen by God, and you are seen by him soberly good and bad. And that's intense. God sees the darkest, most shameful, most evil part of David. In that moment, David's deepest shame, his deepest evil, is brought flat out onto the table and God says, David, I see you. I see you. I see the parts of you that you hate. I see all of it. And David's response is abject repentance. Go read Psalm 51. David wrote that psalm as a response to his experience of this time in his life. He says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. 
I would offer sacrifices, but that's not what you want. What you want is my repentance. I've sinned against you and you alone, God. And David falls on his face in repentance before God. And this sermon turns into a love sermon because in that moment, God forgives David. He forgives him. And if you're like me, part of you doesn't like that. David is awful. Look what he's done. Look at the the horrible consequences of his sin and his choices. Look what happened to poor Bathsheba. Yeah, it's that evil. But God forgives him. And when I step back and remember the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee and remember, if I'm going to relate to anyone in this story, I'm David. Then all of a sudden I go, ooh, God forgave David. God forgives us. Beloved, that is the love of Advent. It's the God who steps down into our dirty, sinful, awful, unjust world. It's the God who sees us, and I mean truly sees us, who sees you and sees down to the atoms of your body, sees down to the depths and roots of your soul, sees all the beauty in you and his image in you and all the evil in you, all the injustices that have been done to you, all the ways the curse has affected you, and yes, beloved, all the ways that you have given yourself over to the sin and evil and awfulness of this broken and cursed world. He sees you and sees you clearly and says, man, I love you. I offer you forgiveness. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me and receive forgiveness. That is the love of God for you, beloved. I'm going to end with this, Chris, if you want to come up. In his, in his letter, his first letter, the, the Apostle John says this about love in chapter 3 in the beginning of verse 16. He says, this is how we know what love is. That Christ died for us. The very way by which we define love, the very way by which we are, are able to understand what love is, is in the action of Jesus. That the God of the universe sees you and I with sober eyes, no masks, nothing hidden, and he chose to come down into this world to be born in a muddy, gross stable and live a life, live a perfect, sinless life, and take on the unjust death, take on the actual punishment for sin, to be killed on the cross, having done nothing wrong, to receive the full wrath of God in payment for sin. Or you and I. That's how we know what love is. It's in the blood of Jesus spilled on the cross that says, it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter what has been done to you. I love you. That's how Jesus looks at you, beloved. It's how he sees you. It's the invitation he gives you to receive his love, to find in him the forgiveness of sins, to find in him life and freedom. Come on, church. I'm going to end with just three, three quick thoughts and then I'll invite you to pray and consider all this song is sung. As this song is sung over you, I would ask you to consider three different things. I feel like some of us in this space, really today, 
probably just need to be hit with the fact that God sees us. He sees your sin. And it's serious to Him. And it's actually a big deal. And if you're in this space and, man, there's just some way that you feel trapped by sin. Maybe that's some injustice that was done to you that you just can't seem to shake that feels like it just owns and dominates your life. Or maybe that's some empty well, some sin pattern that you just run back to over and over and over and you hate it, but it just seems like you can't get past it. I want to encourage you to bring that into the light today. And come find one of our pastors. We want you guys to go to walk in freedom. We want to walk with you in that journey. You know, we have... We, and we're serious when we say that. Like We have a discipleship group in our church specifically centered around helping people find freedom from unwanted sexual sin, unwanted sexual behavior. That's you. Come bring that into light. There's no shame. There's no judgment. We just want to help you walk in the freedom that Christ has for you. And if it's something else, in a million different ways, sin can crush our hearts. We'd love to be in that journey with you. I'd ask you to bring that to Jesus. See what he says. Go, go poke that part of your heart that you guard and you don't want poked and see what Jesus says to you. And maybe you're in this space today and you just know for a fact that you're not actually living in the love of Jesus. That the sacrificial love he offers you, that it's something you've heard about, maybe you've heard just recently. You just know, you just know in your heart that's not actually something you've received. I encourage you to consider his invitation to you today. Jesus loves you. There's no other, there's no simpler way to tell you the gospel. The God of the universe loves you and wants freedom in life for you. You can have that. If you're thinking through that, please come find a Listen, there's pastors in the room. We'd love to talk to you about that. Come find them. Or if you're in this space and you go, man, I actually am in the love of Christ. I know I'm in Christ. And this is a good reminder. And I, you know, I'm just not sure what to do with that reminder today. I would encourage you to consider this in the next few minutes. As John continues that passage in 1 John 3, 1 to 16, he actually begins to talk about because Christ's love has loved us in that way. This is how we know love, what love is. That Christ died for us. He goes on to say, so that's how you should love one another. You should give of yourself. You should sacrifice of yourself that others might be benefited. I would encourage you today to consider what it looks like this week, Christmas week, ending out work obligations, getting ready to see family, wrapping presents, all the chaos. What does it look like for you to live the love of Jesus to the people in your circle this week? How can you sacrifice of yourself that they might see it more clearly? Three things. I'm going to pray. I'd ask you to consider those as Chris sings over you. Just see what the Spirit says to you, and then we'll end out our time with communion. Sound good? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are so good. Thank you for your love. Love we didn't earn, love we don't deserve, but love you give freely. Thank you, Jesus. Please help our hearts to hear that message today, to see your love today. Please speak to us how we need your love today. Beloved, do the work you need to do with Jesus.